everybody, and welcome to Ludicrously Specific Lockdown Edition 2.0 or 3.0 or 4.0. We've lost track. Uh, this is Doug. No. Um, I'm Darren, the one who just said fuck. And I'm Steve, the one who won't say fuck. Oh, fuck. Yes. And the one who sounds like he's down a well because, like Steve many other people in our country, he was confident that we wouldn't ever go into lockdown again and that we didn't need to prepare for this eventuality. Here we are. You know what to get me for Christmas, okay? A new set of headphones would be nice. Thank you very much. Or, or maybe just a, a ladder. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's very cozy down here. I got the trick from the ring. You know, we're just hanging out. <laughs> well, it's you and Sudoku. No, what's the name? <laughs> yeah, I'm, yeah, I'm doing a Sudoku down a well. That's perfect. <laughs> Sadaka, doing Sudoku. Uh, I can't even remember how to pronounce it. This is going to go well. Um, <laughs> I can't be the only one drinking my way through lockdown right now. <laughs> okay. Uh, <laughs> Take two. Welcome to Ludicrous. <laughs> 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 cut out nothing that we just did. <laughs> nothing will be cut. Don't worry. Unless you're listening, in which case, be very afraid. <laughs> anyway, we um we sort of have a episode that we have queued up coming soon, but we uh, hadn't quite got around to watching the films, and we're going to watch one of them together. And yeah, I can't. Once. Can't imagine we're the only people who made plans that are um, laughing right about now at how those plans were going to manifest. Yep. Mm-hmm. Back in back in level four lockdown, we've got the Delta variant rolling in through New Zealand, which is uh, unwelcome. So uh, most people are in their homes, apart from us essential workers like me, who sells alcohol as considered an essential worker. Uh, I get to go <laughs> to work when else gets to look at their walls and drink alcohol. So, um, yeah, win-win. Well, and some of us, are, I'm still working. I'm just working from home. That's all. <laughs> uh, yeah, but then, you know, as I say, it's uh, it's it's not been one of those um, weeks that everyone sort of had the best time because back on Tuesday, it was uh, announced very abruptly. Uh, I only found out about it uh, when suddenly everyone in my neighborhood arrived at the liquor store simultaneously, uh, <laughs> which, was, um, which was fun. It was Christmas Eve without the gift wrapping. Oh, and, my Lord. Yep, and at 11.59 p.m. that night, we were locked down again. So, we probably didn't uh, move as many uh, units of eggnog, to be fair. We we definitely moved a lot of units, but no eggnog. No, thank you. I, that's a bit of an American thing. I've never tried it, and it just sounds it sounds nasty. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm anti-egg and I'm anti-nog, so it's a uh, bad <laughs> combination. So would you naturally like nog? Is it a, um, is it a which came first situation? The egg or the nog? I am so unfamiliar with nog. I my preferences <laughs> tend towards bog. Um. <laughs> and fair enough too. We did see a picture of you rocking the very very cool bog T-shirt, which I hope to own at some point soon. Yes, yeah, so our, lock- our friend Gwen Blomfield, who's a uh, quite an amazing artist and production designer. And I'll give him a shout out because a short film that he production designed by my, who is directed by my uh, friend, Steve Chow has just made its uh, international premiere at the Fantasia festival. In, uh, yeah. So um, good on him and good on them. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm. So uh, we thought we might just chat a little about what we've been watching either in the lead up to lockdown or in fact, uh, during lockdown. Um, although I get the impression 
Skeet, you might not have had quite as much time as the rest of us to kick back with the cathode ray tube. Scheduled. So uh, my two days off actually fell on the first two days of lockdown. So, yeah, I've, I've watched about eight movies in the last uh, five days anyway. For certain oh, wow. reasons, some of them for lockdown and one of them because my son was given an assignment from school where he had to watch a movie and then identify long shots, identify close-ups, oh, wow. extreme close-ups say what they're saying about the movie and um they didn't actually specify what movie they said just pick a movie so um we watched the descent is he legally allowed to watch that i'm not i'm gonna legally i'm gonna answer that question for you <laughs> <laughs> i'm just <laughs> saying you are you are submitting to a government funded um <laughs> entity that homework so it's it, we can keep the secret here all you want but <laughs> we did we did check the rating up this is actually now 16 and he's close enough to i mean 13 is close enough to 16 and you know he's, he's watching with parental guns and he loves horror movies and he friggin loved it it's okay a, it's a terrific one and i think that dates far enough back in the past of movie marathon that i can acknowledge that it was the very first film i saw at movie marathon and oh wow uh, I think that was the yep. yeah that, that was 2005 and uh, that was um, I knew nothing about it going in and it's terrific and it's great to know nothing going in because it wasn't remotely the film I thought it was going to be exactly and, I, I, when it came up I didn't even recognize Neil Marshall the director's name until afterwards when it was like oh dog soldiers there we go but yeah it basically you know the movie starts and about what four or five minutes into it, there's a scene which made a lot of people scream and made me go, yeah. Jesus, fuck, really loudly in front of 300 people. Uh, and that's as much as I'll say about that. If you haven't seen The Descent, you should have by now. But um, it is definitely a movie that if you get, and you get the UK cut and not the US cut, you'll watch it. Mm-hmm. Great time if you like horror and don't mind some more visceral scenes, shall we say. So, um, What's yeah, the difference the between the two? The difference in the UK, they actually cut the ending for the US cut. Uh, oh, yeah. There's a, yeah. a big the twist near the end, and they literally found it too depressing and cut it off. It just cut straight to the credits. So, right, okay. Yeah, so, yeah, the, the has story, the Disney but. ending, essentially, the American <laughs> cut. <laughs> it's, uh, the Descent, for me, is um, one of those, is a film that's in amongst the list of movies that are... So extre- uh, uh, greatly extreme for me that um, I inevitably end up seeing them about three or four fucking times. <laughs> yeah, twice at my house, I think. Twice at your fucking house. Yes, I'm going <laughs> to fucking swear. <laughs> uh, because the, 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 um, the oh, um, oh fucking uh, Jesus Christ moment or what have you is um is is something i see when i close my eyes on occasion so it's um i've seen that film far too many times for um for someone who i really enjoyed it but it's um <laughs> it's yeah it's um it can be quite extreme i would say for for my tender eyes yeah there i mean there's some scenes in it it's the true horror in a lot of horror movies is the stuff that you can imagine happening to yourself. I mean, ghosts and ghouls, great, fine, but it's not in the real world. But, you know, someone having their fingernails scrape across concrete or, or stone and you just cringe internally as you know that could actually... Or a broken bone, for that matter. Yes, that's oh, true. Yeah. Yeah. So there's, <laughs> yeah. yeah, there is definitely... It's, it's not for the squeamish in parts, but it is... 
it's such a well-crafted movie. I mean, it it starts off with the, you know, you feel like you're going to Evil Dead, Cabin in the Woods type territory, and then it just drags you in a completely different direction, and that direction is down. So, <laughs> it's dissenting wise, in, in yeah. fact. In it's, it's, um, so if you were, oh, sorry, we don't is, have visual cues. So. Visual cues. <laughs> we are you first up. Each other. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say, in some ways, it feels like a um, predecessor to a lot of the A24 horror movies that are so popular today, because so many of those films are um, predicated on an initial trauma that has nothing to do with the rest of the narrative other than that whatever, you know, trauma happens in the opening. And, I'm you know, Midsummer is a perfectly um, pointed example of this. Uh, hangs over the character and their journey throughout the film. And this is a similar sort of thing. And I, I feel like back in that time, you know, it was a different kind of era for horror where it wasn't really as important what the character had gone through as much as what you were going to put them through. Um, <laughs> and this this was, I think, one of the early ones, probably not the the only early one. I'm sure it's all through the history of horror but i think it's um something right now it's hard to find a horror film which doesn't create a, a traumatic backstory for its protagonist whereas you know so many of the quote-unquote classic horror films are just perfectly normal people who just happen to find themselves in very terrible situations without any traumatic backstory to give it extra gravitas mm. And if if listener, you were interested in knowing what other film might be on my list of films, I felt extremely extreme that I've been subjected to at least four times. One of those is Antichrist. Ooh. Four times. Ouch. Uh huh. <laughs> four times more than I do. <laughs> it's uh, the um, I saw it once um, at the cinema. I think it was. And then, um, and then I um, I had it on my computer, and my uh, flatmate um, watched it one time. And then he decided that when he got really drunk, he'd like to bring back um, friends to um, to my flat to watch it at two in the morning. <laughs> Because nothing says like party. Like I actually had somebody on Twitter talk about a party where they got shown Grave of the Fireflies, and oh, Jesus. I was trying to think of a worse party movie than that. And Solo uh, <laughs> is the only one that came to mind, but um, I think Antichrist is way up there. If you haven't seen it, Skeets, it does contain the unkindest cut of all. Oi, oi, oi! Read about it, and I have no intention of seeing it drunk sober or at any time of the day or night to be perfectly honest it is actually beautifully shot it is a, a it's a beautiful looking film for everything that's in it i mean after four times you have to find something to appreciate <laughs> <laughs> and it is it is the cinematography is just is is really beautiful and the opening tragic sequence is really well made, well done. Um, I saw it in the front row of the um, civic balcony, and I knew the um, unkindest cut was coming, but I didn't oh. know just how protracted 
the lead oh. up to that was going to be oh, in oh. terms of the everything that Willem Dafoe's character goes through. And oh. I almost passed out in the cinema. It's like oh, I was just oh, my not, not prepared. I was just well, because it's a film that's like this film is not going to play by the rules and it's not interested in anything except making you squirm and going down its own road. And maybe there's something profound to be said there, or maybe chaos just drains. Mm-hmm. So you're really not selling it to me right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'd, say, I'd say watch raging bull first. <laughs> I'll add it I to the bottom of the list. <laughs> grab, grab Aiden, scrap the project you've done up until now. <laughs> And do go it. for it. <laughs> but you mentioned uh, watching a drunk. What is your what is your favorite drunk watch? I mean, we we encourage sensible drinking, but sometimes you do want to have a, a watch a movie when you've had a couple. And what's your go to? Because mine is always been Death Proof at the, in the last you know since Death Proof came out. Right. Ninja Three. If you try and play the Death Proof drinking game, will you try and do a shot every time the characters do a shot. By halfway through, you're just having the time of your life because you are slightly trolled. Uh, as the last three times I've done uh, had that, it's basically has always become a, a drunk watch. So, what's your drunk watches? Well, Darren, don't go first. You you just said one. Um, oh yeah, so... I said Ninja Three. I'll I'll elaborate on that because <laughs> nice. it is. Um, if you've seen movies, it's like that, but better. And um, <laughs> uh, uh, and I've never seen any of the other ninja films, but I mean, I've seen other ninja films, but that, not in that particular series. But um, my first viewing of it, uh, I bought it on Blu-ray based on reputation and I invited a friend over, uh, Nigel, and he'd, I'd gotten drunk before he showed up and then I got drunk while he was there and then we put it on and it was just like, oh this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> and then I watched it sober once just to confirm and it's great sober, but, um, but like, you know, so many things it gets better with alcohol. And so I, yeah, that would be my go-to. Like if you were to ask me to get trolleyed and watch a movie, I'd go to the Blu-ray shelf and grab Ninja three. Very uh-huh. nice. That series That's does it. peak at three, which is very unusual for most film series. Cause we watched it. And that was the one we started on, wasn't we it? And it we went, yeah. Yes, yeah, so I'm sure we've talked about 3. this before. <laughs> yeah, and Ninja Three went backwards, and it got progressively less interesting as we got back to the ones that were trying to be serious and weren't a ripoff of Flash Dance with flying swords and ninjas. Oh, and Lucinda Dickey. Oh, Lucinda Dickey, wonderful Lucinda Dickey. I mean, you know that uh, having both break down, break into Electric Boogaloo and Ninja Three: The Domination on your CV is just—I mean, that's perfect. Anything else after that is gravy. That's that's right. <laughs> Uh, um, I it was it's um, Slither. Oh, oh, yep, nice. It's um, I I find the the drunk movies are the ones which are um, you come home um, at about three in the morning, and you're just not ready to go to sleep yet, and it's um, and you you're you're um, quietly or largely or greatly merry. Um, I, I find the um, the sort of comedy horror types are, the, are which um, Dominion's uh, 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 Ninja Three um, is it the domination? Dominion? The domination would fall into uh, that category yeah. for me as well. Um, 
You're talking it's, about the um, James Gunn Slither, of course, right? Yeah, I just discovered absolutely. a 1973 film called Slither that oh, I'm with tracking James down. Gunn. Yeah. Boy, I think I have have that somewhere. You probably do. <laughs> yeah, you just got it buried to you through, you know, your entire selection of uh, Blu-rays and probably get buried underneath it by now. Yeah. You can get out the forklift at some point and uh, find it underneath. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, The Slither is just, it's such a, it's a fun, fun movie. And it's it's nicely gooey and squishy and... It's um, I, I enjoy that film a lot and it's about to get a new Blu-ray release here um, by Umbrella, which would be very cool. Did yeah, either of you get to see Suicide Squad, by the way, speaking of James Gunn? Not yet. Not yet. No, not yet. Yeah. It's I fun. I've seen the first one, but um, I hear it doesn't. That's matter. not necessary. I, I mean, <laughs> I don't think it's I haven't seen the first one, so. Oh, I have, and if I could go back in time and remove it from my memory, uh, actually it wouldn't matter because I can barely remember a thing about it, except um, how much I actively hated it while watching it. Um, I think I saw it on um, on Sky or Neon or something like that. Right. I, uh, I don't recommend uh, it, but the but the new one I'm looking forward to. Yeah, it does sound yeah. like it's it's like it's actually got the right tone that it's got a sense of humor to itself and it's not de-seeing itself into you know desaturating and making everything horrible it sounds like it's just a fun time and the fact that john cena was so into it that he did every bit of media in character and then went to the premiere in character as peacemaker yeah. it sounds like if he's having a good time we were going to have a good time yeah it's he's as good in it as he is bad in f9 <laughs> Okay, that's another one I haven't seen yet. But, uh, uh, yeah, there's no need. There's no need to see that. But um, yeah, I had. There's some things I didn't love about Suicide Squad, but there's enough that makes it pretty recommendable as a um, reprehensible good time in the cinema. Um, but that's not happening here anytime soon. So, for a not so reprehensible uh, comfort watch at home, I I wound up watching something the other night with Sarah that I normally is not the kind of thing that I wouldn't watch, which is a British re- based on true events thriller called official secrets with Kira Knightley and Ray Fiennes. And I can already hear you yawning. Um, <laughs> and I would not have watched it had, but I heard um, a couple surprisingly good reviews of this incredibly boring sounding film. And it's based on a um, true story about um, somebody prosecuted for leaking uh, information under the Official Secrets Act in the lead-up to the Iraq War in 2003. Uh, And it doesn't transcend that movie, but it is the best version of that movie. It's directed by Gavin Hood, who did uh, a similarly kind of unexpectedly better than it sounds on the tin film called Eye in the Sky, um, but originally came to fame for uh, Zotzi and then did the Wolverine movie and um rendition and ender's game he's had a very strange career but he seems to have fallen into this british uh getting great actors to do that risa fons gives the performance of his career um wow. there's um uh, matthew which is the one who's the doctor who with the funny face the the doctor who with the funny face the matthew that's a doctor who with the funny face oh matt smith that one he's in this yeah. uh he's a reporter um and don't whatever you do, don't read 
uh, anything about the true life story around it because there are two complete what the fuck moments in this film that you're just like, this can't be what really happened. And they are. And both of them are just like (laughs) so jaw dropping. There's a third um, thing that happens that I suspect is a bit cooked, but um, by and large, it's just, you know, a good kind of, I bet they probably watch things like all the president's men a lot. And they're like, let's just try to get something with all these different moving pieces of the press coverage and the person who's the whistleblower and the justice system all kind of playing against each other. And yeah, it's just, if you need a comfort, like kind of not too difficult, but somewhat meaningful film that reminds you is um, we go through this crap in Afghanistan that you can't blame Biden. You can't blame Trump and you can't blame Obama because Bush and Blair's fucking fault were there in the first place. I'm not even that drunk. I'm just that mad about them. Um, sure. It's, it, it's a good uh, reminder of the long arc of history and how um, that stuff plays out. But it's also, you can also not care particularly passionately about it and just be like, Oh, this is a really watchable, interesting movie. Mm-hmm. Well, it's. Uh, I think it's my turn now. Um, uh, my my film, which is actually a number of films, and I'll uh, a little bit of a backstory. Tell the chucking change. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's like that, is it? It's like uh, that. This is lockdown edition, baby. <laughs> well, it's um, my back. Backstory, unfortunately, uh, the reason that we haven't done, uh, not the sole reason, but the reason that we haven't done um, the uh, uh, the podcast in a wee while is that, uh, unfortunately, um, uh, we just lost my dad quite recently. Um, it's uh, He's been gone a month now, and um, and we're just, it's, it's still of course, a very sad thing, and it's this is quite a huge thing for me to even be talking about this now. But um, strangely, uh, after I um, left my uh, my mum's place, we'd be we were uh, my brother and I were here with my mum when um, after Dad passed, and uh, we were looking after, and then when we went back to our normal lives, as you have to do, it's just part of the course i've started watching just because um i as i um, put on mission impossible it's um, the first one the first uh, so i put on mission impossible the brian de palmer you're quite correct um because i thought I um, I've a long time had uh, a dislike of of Tom Cruise, and um, and I just thought sometimes I don't know why during this particular situation, but I thought I would just give this a shot again, um, and just uh, and I ended up really enjoying it, and um, and all the performances and Jean Reno is great and Ving Rhames and is it Henry Zerny I think is really really good as Kendrick in it um, and it was just really enjoyable and I started to notice that um, 
Tom Cruise was giving a slightly better performance than I ever gave him um, credit for. Uh, it's and so I watched the next one. <laughs> <laughs> and does happen. Um, I've done the same thing recently. And, and I actually I watched all six um, within a space of about two or three days. And I um, I can now honestly say that. Um, I think Tom Cruise is a, I'll never ever say he's a great actor or an excellent actor, but I think he's a good actor. I think he actually does a very good job. And um, I was really, uh, so it was, it was time to give um, Cruise a reappraisal. I think he's a really good actor. However, it's, and, but I still have a problem with him and I think it's, and it'll never go away. And it's just the fact that he always makes the cool choice. He always chooses to look good in every single scene without ex- exception. I mean, it, and even uh, I'm sure people are saying, well, but what about um, that um, Thunder, uh, that Ben Stiller movie where he played the fat guy? Tropic Thunder. Uh, Tropic Thunder. Um, but of course he, exactly, he still chose to be, um, high status, never, never in on the, uh, it's, um, he was always still choosing to look good and be happy and, uh, and, and have pride in everything that he was doing. Uh, so I, it's, it's just a problem I have with his style of acting. He will always make the cool choice, never the vulnerable one. Or in in my mind, I don't know what you guys think on that score. Yeah, I uh, so, oh sorry, I'll, yeah, I'll no go I'll ahead, you go ahead. Yeah, jump in there. We're gonna cut each other off again. Um yeah, because I, I rewatched uh, the original Mission Impossible probably about six months ago, I think. Um but just on a whim. And then I jumped forward and I went to, I think, um, Ghost Protocol, which is one of the ones I hadn't seen. I hadn't seen the, I hadn't seen the one after Rogue Nation. But I, I actually quite like the Mission Impossible movies just because whereas it is always you know, a Tom Cruise movie, it, for me, they're, they're much more ensemble movies than just a Tom Cruise one. So if you're not a big Tom Cruise fan, there's normally someone else in there. I mean, you've got Simon Pegg in certain movies, which is yeah. great. You've got Seymour Hoffman's in one of the and True. three. I, so there's always an actor around there that you're probably going to quite enjoy their performance in. And it's, they're definitely their escapism. And, you know, if I, I'm kind of wishing I had seen this one, that I, the last one I saw on the big screen, because I'm not a big fan oh, of Fallout's and incredible. That, yeah. Yeah. So there is, there is, uh, there's always these, these stunt work being done on, on the side of planes and the side of giant buildings and stuff, which I think kind of mammoth stream would have been actually phenomenal. It's not mm-hmm. a movie I'd go back and uh, say I've got to watch that once every year, but if it once every so often it crops up in the suggested for you list, I'll probably dip into them because, as I say, I'd you know, for me, Tom Cruise is I have no animosity with Tom Cruise, I think he's fine in certain roles and he's not he's badly cast in others. And we're looking at you mm. interview with Empire, uh, and but, Jack Reacher, yeah, I, have, I haven't seen those. Is he good in those ones? Or? It's he's not, he's just miscast. I don't think it's whether he's good or bad. It's just he he shouldn't be Jack Reacher. Shouldn't be there. But, you know, I've, I've enjoyed his performances in plenty of ones there. I mean, you know, once again, I try and disassociate the fact, you know, 
biggest Scientologist out there, which to me is just a straight up and up cult for money. So it's it's he's become the face of a cult for money. So, but I disassociate that from what's going on on screen when I watch it. So I I normally do enjoy you know the escapism of those those movies. It's you know it's it's definitely something I can. It's disposable entertainment, but a lot of entertainment's disposable really. You know, no matter how big he tries to make it by doing all those own stunts mm. and breaking ankles and things and strapping himself to the sides of planes and stuff, it's 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 a good entertainment and a good escape from reality Taiwan. absolutely it's uh, and it was actually fallout which made me revisit it because i watched fallout um on i think it might have been on um on neon or something about a, a year or two ago because i think it came out in 2017 18 something like that fallout. Uh, 18 yeah, that year so i think i watched neon a year or two ago uh watched it on neon a year or two ago and i it did absolutely nothing for me i was um i was whelmed to under it's <laughs> um it it's uh but i i was wondering whether or not that was um what i was going through at the time or whether i was it was just not a good day or it's um and so i thought and i do like to revisit films where i'm i'm not sure that i'm being fair to them yeah and that can happen it's, i know i'm i'm such a good person but um and and i know you all know that but i i do like to uh, it's, um revisit just on occasion uh, where i feel that i'm not being fair and um i uh, i really enjoyed watching it this time it's uh, and um i i pretty much all of them were good i i quite enjoyed the second one which i know has had quite a um i think the second one is massively underrated i, I mean the only so. thing, things that are wrong with it is the script is incredibly stupid and nothing that happens makes sense it's a john woo film imagine <laughs> mm-hmm. not liking a john woo film for those reasons it's a fucking <laughs> like full-on john woo film with a hollywood budget it's got the doves it's got like dueling motorcycles like what oh, the hell my. else do you need <laughs> In slow motion, <laughs> it's a John Woo film. The slow motion is taken as red. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, it's um. But to to me, and always, it's always been the third film has my been my favorite. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman is an amazing villain. He's actually not in it as much as I remembered he was, but it's. He's great. I think it's the... a really memorable performance, though. Like, I, I mean, I instantly think of that. And actually, I've, I've been recently thinking about those films because there is a podcast called Light the Fuse, uh, mm. which goes into the making of the Mission Impossible films in copious detail. And after many years, they finally got to Palma to uh, appear on it. And um, he, they talk, he mentions a little bit about some of the other films and um, he singled out on um, Philip Seymour Hoffman's performance as one of the highlights of, you know, one of the other films. But um, I would, if for any mission impossible fans, I think that two part episode is there. And then if you're curious, there's interviews with pretty much everyone, this side of Tom Cruise. I mean, from the <laughs> cinematographers to the writers to, you know, whatever. And so, yeah, light the fuse is that podcast worth tracking well, down. 
it was you mentioning the podcast which put it into my mind in the first place. Um, so I, I started listening to the podcast, and then I thought oh, I'd right. give okay. I'd give the um, the first film a go, which I um, and then and then the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth. <laughs> you have a good go, yeah. In a yeah. space of um, three days, I'm pretty sure it was from yeah Wednesday to through to Friday. It's. I, th- I think that the, to go back to your question about Tom Cruise, though, I mean, I think Eyes Wide Shut, I think Magnolia, and I think um, until he goes full Terminator at the end of Collateral, like, you know, he put, he puts himself with some really great directors during that era, and he was really, um, there's moments in Eyes Wide Shut that I find quite vulnerable, and I think there's part of the flip side of whatever people find smarmy about Tom Cruise is it's really fun to watch him suffer. And I think Magnolia in particular taps into that incredibly well. And, um, you know, the scene with, uh, with where he goes and visits Jason Robards is, um, yeah, I, I've revisited that film recently and it, uh, had, it, you know, it, it's almost by definition, it's a lumpy meal, but, um, the highlights of it are astonishing. Absolutely, and that's a that role in that movie has been one I've always loved of his. Anyway, even yeah. I didn't have to have my mind changed on on Magnolia. I've always thought that that was his best performance. It's um, and Magnolia's uh, that's a film I really must revisit at some point. It's uh, I think it would be time. But yes, so I saw six films and I enjoyed <laughs> enjoyed them a lot. And I definitely will be the next time I look at a, a, a Tom Cruise film, I'll be a little bit more open than I have been up until this point. All right, Skeet. So we're on to film number two, quote unquote, of the <laughs> films. What's that? Uh... I, what I, else I have you been watching? I thought I just started rambling about something earlier on, but I didn't realize that counted as film one. But then again, this is this is a lockdown podcast, so we could go for days here. So, yes. <laughs> well, I have uh, continued on a bit with the not the international film fest challenge that uh, Mr. Doug did, ah. uh, which led to a, a very odd triple feature, uh, which did involve one five star movie on my uh, letterboxed and two five star movies if you combine the two of them together. <laughs> so they <laughs> two stars. Uh, we did a triple feature of The Happening, Ninja Avengers, also known as Ninja Commando 6, uh, Champion on Fire, I believe the subtitle was, uh, and then and my five-star flick, which was, oddly enough, John Woo's The Killer, which I haven't seen in probably 15 years at least. And I'm now pretty much turned uh, turned slightly gay for Chow Yun-Fat because, holy crap, he takes the looking cool in every scene and just takes it to the extreme because he can't walk into a room without walking in in slow motion and basically lights a cigarette and, and every woman around just falls in love with him and half the guys. It is quite an amazing film to rewatch and look at the 19, like 1989 and watch the 90s just starting to evolve in Hong Kong. And then, of course, if you've ever seen The Killer, you know it's a gun-fu movie. So it's every bullet in Hong Kong gets fired in just under two hours. And just to be sure, that was every woman, 
half the guys and slightly you. Would that and be right? Slightly, oh, definitely. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a happily married man, but uh, if Chow Young Pat turned up in 1989 <laughs> time machine, I'd be like, well, could be worth a, could be worth a fling. You know, it'd be fun to talk about that in the pub afterwards. So... <laughs> It's funny, I haven't revisited The Killer in ages, and I saw The Killer and Hard Boiled back to back, and I remember vastly preferring Hard Boiled and thinking that The Killer was a bit um, maudlin or something, But um, which may sound funny after my full-throated um, defense of John Woo earlier, but um, are, do you prefer Hard Boiled to Killer, Killer to Hard Boiled, or is that a um, choose one of your... I guess because yeah. I was originally going to watch Hard Boiled. I, I, I picked Hard Boiled. And I dug out my old copy of it, and time has not been good to my copy of it, and um, it was unwatchable. Uh, the audio was completely gone, so I'm going to have to quickly find another one. I did like how 90s that was, that it literally started with a slow-motion shot of somebody doing a tequila slammer, which is the most 90s drink <laughs> you can ever do, and especially in slow motion. I mean, John Woo making a cocktail look cool uh, is, is very John Woo. So I do remember that I really liked Hard Boil, but it's, once again, it's probably been to 20 years since I've seen it. I have no idea why I've never gone back to revisit. And I remember seeing The Killer originally because I saw it off a VHS tape that it looked like it had been shot several times before I got to, to watch it. So watching it now with, with, you know, in full 1080p, the whole Blu-ray experience, mm. it really pumps it back up for me. It's, it's, it is at times quite a downbeat movie. And you know, it's, it's the kind of movie where you're not going to get a lot of happy endings for its cast. But it really for me holds up incredibly well, and the action sequences, as I say, which is uh, especially after going directly from the incredibly dull ninja movie, uh, which Joseph lies low point. Uh, I'd have to say, well, I don't know. I've only seen three of his movies, and that this is definitely the low point. Ninja Avengers was shockingly too bad for a, a slap together ninja movie because it forgot to ninja and didn't have any movie after that. There was there was. <laughs> it was a terrible movie that they slapped it into that seemed to be cut into pieces, so it was almost incomprehensible. And the ninja action was approximately six and a half minutes out of an 80-minute long movie. So we were not overly impressed with that one. And then we went straight from that into the most ballistic thing we'd probably seen that month. Uh, and, yeah, I, I do have to recommend going back to it if you haven't seen it, because it's, it is that just the style in which it is shot is... So 90s, so John Woo. It is peak John mm-hmm. Woo. That's, uh, you know, anytime that you know, makes a joke about our John Woo and, and slow motion and doves, it's like we literally got scenes which slow motion doves and crosses at the back look through an old church and a billion candles, which is, is one of those John Woo staples of combining all those things together, which I think reached its peak later on when he, he did that in Face Off. But, um, Oh, yeah, and the bit it. where the the two doves grab the um, the the crosses and the candle, and just <laughs> and fly up and fight each other on motorcycles. <laughs> exactly. It's, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's my it's, favorite bit. <laughs> out of the movies I've watched in the last few months, I've only rated two of them at five stars, and they've both been in the last month. And that was The Killer and David Byrne's American Utopia. Mm-hmm. Oh, good. You finally watched that. I finally did. My first lockdown movie was American Utopia at 10.30 in the morning on the first oh. day of lockdown because I thought, well, I got the day off, and obviously we ain't doing shit today, so I finally yeah. put it on while everyone else was still in bed. And my goodness, is American Utopia is, it is phenomenal. It is as good as Stop Making Sense. Mm-hmm. It is 
and it it feels so much. I mean, it's such a much more intimate experience, but it also feels mm. like David Burns actually enjoying himself because yes. anytime yeah. you see him in concert, he seems to be having a very stressful time, and this time he's making jokes, David Burns style jokes, but there's definitely jokes in there. Oh yes, they're they're very awkward jokes. It's uh, <laughs> it and it always feels like he's learning to be human. Um, but he's, uh, um, yeah, it's I'm I'm so glad you've finally seen it because uh, if you um, gentle listener, if you remember back to the uh, after Christmas episode where we talked about our favorite films of the year, um, I did state that uh, American Utopia was definitely one of the one of my favorites of last year. It's, yeah, and uh, I, I remember us talking about that, and I didn't have quite as strong a reaction to it because I'd been fortunate enough to see the show. But mm. um, I definitely encourage anybody who's remotely interested in David Byrne to check it out um, because especially during lockdown, because it is just such a blast of um, energy and optimism, even if some of the specific kind of Trump era stuff is already dated and um, we don't really need a uh, voter registration call at the moment. We need a get vaccinated geniuses call. (laughs) (laughs) But but even just the, just the way that that is set. I mean, you can see that, David Burns OCD fingerprints all over that that everything is minutely choreographed but it never feels it never feels staged or fake it feels natural and just some of the, the little quirks he has of you know all the the, the musicians off stage with just their instruments poked through the curtains on the side and, and no the, chords no chords and the lighting apparently was so technologically up to date they could they had little sensors on, so it would automatically follow all the people. So there was no, mm. you were never going to lose these these characters unless they were meant to be in shadow. So it's it's a technological achievement mm. on stage, and the music is fantastic. And I mean, some of the, the he pulled out some of the old tracks, but then suddenly he's pulling out Toe Jam, which um, they were, he did with Dizzy Rascal, and he's he's pulling out uh, uh, some really obscure ones plus some new ones. And it's it, just the flow of it is amazing. It's about an hour and fifty minutes, but it just flew by. And suddenly, I'm just looking at it going, "Hang on, it's nearly lunchtime. What's happened?" I've only been watching this for about half an hour, but I was yeah. practically at the end of the credits. So the the um, that is well worth a look, even if you're not a David Byrne fan. Just if you're a fan of movie making or stage production, definitely have a look at it too. And that was Amazon Prime, wasn't it? It was. Yeah, it just came onto Amazon Prime uh, just recently, just uh, probably mm. in the last month or so. Although Amazon Prime is, is once again being Amazon Prime because I've read some articles about how it's becoming in America almost impossible on Amazon Prime to search for what you want unless you know what you want because the tagging system is getting worse. The you know, things like movies will be have. He said the example was he said uh, this, uh, journalist on I forget the uh, website but he said that he found Major League and he looked at the tags and it was sports and comedy and he clicked on comedy and there it was. He clicked on sports. It's not on the sports section. <laughs> and a lot of content is apparently disappearing because it gets the feeling that somebody in Amazon's gone. The less free content we give them with their Prime subscription, the more they might have to hire or buy. So a lot of things have been purged off the system as we speak. Oh, which nice. is dickish. Uh, I will point out this is Steve's rant of the episode. Fuck you, Prime, if you're going to start doing that. If that is your idea, because there's other streaming services, and I don't have to pay you. That's really interesting because I literally just got a VPN two weeks ago 
for things completely unconnected to watching films. But I um, was like, oh, I since I'm a Netflix customer and an Amazon Prime customer, I can see what I can access on other systems. And I had two surprises. One is that there were many more films from my Netflix New Zealand watch list on um, on streaming services than Netflix US. Somebody's deep inhaling into the uh, microphone at the moment. That might be me. Um, Pull that away. Yep. And uh, and the other surprise was that of the movies that were reportedly on Amazon Prime US, I couldn't find any of them. Like The Quiet Man, and there were a couple others that um, Just Watch said were supposed to be there that I couldn't find. So I don't know if they've just recently been dropped or what the deal is, but uh, or if it's something to do with how VPNs work. But um, uh, well, VPN usually means that you can't get Amazon Prime in America because Prime is connected to the entire Prime system which is that you um you had purchased their um their free post and all that sort of thing oh so, right uh, okay it's probably you were just in new zealand and were still not able to uh, i could be wrong but it's um i i know i've tried and and not been successful on that front either well if anyone um listening to this follows us on twitter and has any insight on that feel free to chime in mm-hmm. um I might um, take over the mic before you come up with yet another movie to talk about. No, Steve. you go. And you go. That, was, that was my two five stars. So I don't do long reviews. I just do lots of reviews. <laughs> yeah. Um, I was feeling guilty um, because I like to find reasons to feel guilty about things, I guess. And um, I was like, you know, I don't really haven't seen. That was a very ungrammatical sentence, but I've started. So I'll finish. Uh, I. <laughs> I haven't really watched much Bollywood and what I've seen has mostly been shit to laugh at, like fight club members only the Bollywood remake of fight club. That is jaw droppingly terrible. Um, or, um, robots, which has become sort of virally famous for some of its absurd fight scenes. And I was like, and I've seen a couple site Yajit Ray films and a couple of the other, like really, classy films but i was like you know i should really try to engage with like the stuff that's actually considered good and you know i don't doesn't mean i have to like it but at least i should try to take it on its own value and i got given a list of films as a crash course the only problem is they're all bloody three hours and um i have um a life what well, yeah, no, I don't. But um, I do have an impatient butt for like movies that are over like a hundred minutes. So, um, but uh, one film that caught my eye was a 2006 film called Rang de Basanti, uh, which is on Netflix, New Zealand. And in fact, between Netflix, New Zealand, and Amazon Prime, there's actually a disproportionately large number of um, Indian films. And uh, so this film is about a a white person who comes to India to make this film about this historic Indian uprising and recruits a bunch of local students uh, to act in it with her. And then um, as they get into it, uh, a real life uh, situation emerges that parallels that in the story. And they're inspired by the story from the past. And, um, it was really good. And that 
is kind of all I want to say about it. I just, I, I, oh, it, okay. it's a little awkward getting it off the ground. Um, it has many of the characteristics of Bollywood films of, you know, sharp tonal shifts between overly broad comedy and musical numbers. And, um, you know, it, and and I'm no expert. I'm no expert at all. So I don't really know where it fits in the corpus of all of this stuff. But I, it's, it's not. Um, I mean, I guess I figured it would be something I'd sit through regardless, and it might be a bit of work, and I just push through because I'm, you know, that's my selflessness to the art of cinema or whatever. And by like. 30 minutes in, I was just fully in and I continued to be in for the entire film. And, um, there are plenty of other films that are highly recommended as introductions to Indian filmmaking, uh, and Indian filmmaking and Bollywood, I should note are not synonymous of course. And I'm actually should double check that Rang de Basanti may not even be Bollywood. It may be a different, uh, region, but regardless, um, I would definitely recommend it for somebody who is perhaps put off by some of the more traditional uh, Indian tropes. I guess the the contrast would be, for instance, I put on the movie Doom, D-H-O-O-M, and um, that was the kind of uh, Bollywood-like white sheets flying through the air that you see at a bad at a restaurant that you kind of laugh at that I had to turn off after 20 minutes. So. I'm not just um, giving it any sort of it's good for what it is. I think it's an actively good film and I'd encourage people to check it out. Excellent. Nice. Oh, I think your, it might be my next, time. Yeah. What are your next seven? <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, actually my next seven consists of one film uh, starring Gene Wilder and Harrison Ford. Um, the uh, the uh, Willy Wonka Indiana Jones crossover we've been dreaming about, I think. Absolutely, <laughs> it is a film called The Frisco Kid. Right. And and I get from uh, your reactions that <laughs> neither of you have heard of this movie. Oh, lo- love the love the sorry the the Frisco who? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't heard of this one. No. Now, this is a film I've known about for quite some time and have been wanting to see it for quite some time and have finally tracked it down. And it's 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 great. It is a it might be one of the best performances I've I've seen of Gene Wilder. And that's saying something because I think he's he gives some great performances in so many of his films. Um, this Can I just one, pause for a second and sure. read the IMDb plot summary because it's one of the best I've ever seen. The one I'm oh, looking okay. at is exactly at the, yeah, I'm looking at the same thing, and I think you have to read this. Oh, should a I Polish, read? I'll read no. it. A, a Polish rabbi is hijacked in America and meets a bank robber and becomes his friend. They have many adventures, including being captured by the Indians. <laughs> <laughs> I must be looking at a different IMDb, because mine says a Polish rabbi wanders through the Old West on his way to lead a synagogue in San Francisco. On the way, he is nearly burnt at stake by Native Americans and almost killed by outlaws. Oh, sorry. To be fair, I actually just Googled it, and I thought it was bringing up the IMDb (laughs) summary, but actually, you're right. It's a different... Yep. Burnt uh, at stake by Indians is an interesting uh, approach (laughs) to history. Yep. (laughs) 
It's um, yeah, it is. It is great. It is very, very funny. It um, it has Gene Wilder doing a lot of his normal stuff, but he's also forced to be a little bit more grounded in um, in quite a few scenes. But the the real surprise is um, is Harrison Ford. And, and he's an actor I've I enjoyed in pretty much most things as well. But uh, this was after Star Wars, before Indiana Jones, or no, it might have been. It was um, it was before Apocalypse Now, at least. And um, he uh, he gives a a very open performance. He's still playing a rogue really? character. Uh, but he's he plays a very he's still a rogue he's a bank robber, but he's very genial and very open and and I don't think I've ever really seen him play that kind of role. And it's um, and him and Gene Wilder Wilder's character have a genuine friendship. They, there's even a, a scene where they're wrestling on the beach, just sort of larks and fun, and it's sort of in this movie as well. It's um, and playing the requisite bad guy, um, but it's it's just a very cool movie. It is a it's a, a western road movie practically, but I highly recommend it. Cool. Nice. And I'm looking at the cast list. I can see quite a few of the names that would normally turn up on our you know, weekend uh, cinema ones. Because I see the late William Smith there as Matt Diggs. Yep. And Vincent Schiavelli as Brother Bruno. So, yes. Oh, Vincent Schiavelli. Uh, very, very fun. Um, small role for him, but, but very fun. Yeah, we, yes. we just lost William Smith only about, well, only about, about what, a month or two ago. Absolutely. Oh. And, well, yeah. it's... He actually gets a. It's a good. It's a as a role with a little bit more depth, or slightly more depth than um, than his bad guys usually get. It's. Um, I really, really liked him in this, but I like him in most things. And we've oh, talked yeah, well, about Holly he's, he's Man. Such a, uh, you know, when he turns up there, he's he normally gets to play the bad guy, but he plays them so well, and he was he was just one of those classic character actors that. You know, he was never the even in the worst films was never the worst thing in the film. Um, uh, but, and we we might just want to not talk about Gedevin in this case. It's uh... <laughs> <laughs> well, he's still not the worst thing in Gedevin. Let's put it that way. <laughs> well, that's true. That has to be um, DeHart, um, whatever his <laughs> name. John DeHart has got him a long way, and apparently, uh, William Smith's Hollywood Man, which is one of his few leading, oh, had a, a film screening recently. So they've found a print, apparently. Oh no! They, they, I, they, uh, Quentin Tarantino has had a print for quite some time. It's, um, but um, yeah, we just need to get on to Ant Timpson or Matt Timpson to uh, get hold <laughs> of that print because it is a amazing movie and it is so, so worth seeing. I, I only saw um, the, the cut version on YouTube, but it's, um, it is just tremendous movie. Right. Well, I, I uh, once again, I should talk about two films when I was only. <laughs> oh, as I say, it's we expect down. nothing no, less. Steve, no your turn. 
Matsu, well... There are actually uh, a lot of rules during lockdown, goddammit. Yeah. People should follow them. <laughs> Two cents of well, going through the well, walk today and gonna... 30 people not wearing masks. <laughs> Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna jump in and do I'll, I'll do two films as well, but I'll do one in one cent and one paragraph because it's a movie which I can't really describe, and I do that a lot where I say I can't describe it. But I found the best description of the film in a tweet of all things because uh, I watched uh, a movie I refer to as an art exploitation horror uh, called Messiah of Evil. Oh, yes. fucking rules! Yes. That needs um, more than a paragraph. Oh, okay. Well, if you've seen it, I don't know whether you would or not. I, I probably guess you should have. Came up on oh, Shutter recently. Sight unseen on words from Doug, actually. Oh, it's, nice. uh... and, oh, so I'm uh, the outbreak monkey here. <laughs> <laughs> all your fault there. Yep. So, Genomic um... sequencing reveals that it all happened in uh, <laughs> 2017. Anyway. <laughs> so, so to, for, for, to bring people up to speed that haven't seen this movie, it's directed by Willard Hyuk, I believe. I don't know how he pronounced it. H u y c k. Willard Hyuk, uh, also known as the director of what movie? Howard the Duck. They, yeah, written by the Howard the Duck scribes. Yep, and he's written. So he wrote Howard the Duck. He directed Howard the Duck. He did only. He's only directed four movies: Messiah of Evil, French Postcards, Best Defense, and Howard the Duck. But this was his first one, 1973. Best Defense is the Eddie Murphy uh, satire. Quote yeah, unquote, right? one I've never seen that one there. Um, I'm over, probably a long time ago. Dudley Moore and Eddie Murphy, I believe. So. Yeah, that's the one. I saw it when it was on cable, but it was one of those that I didn't get. But I don't know if I didn't get it because it just wasn't funny or didn't get it because I just didn't understand what it was making fun of. Yeah, I, I think, think I, I may have. Um, they put Eddie Murphy into the film after he, after the film was finished. Oh. It's that, uh, that that's why works. he gets no scenes with Dudley Moore. He's he was a after after effect, I believe. But anyway, that's carry on. Likely. <laughs> yeah, so Messiah of Evil. We'll go get back to Messiah of Evil, even though I'd love to talk about Howard the Duck. But I think we can uh, move on from there. There's many a podcast talk about Howard the Duck. This mm-hmm. this tweet, which uh, is I'm going to give him credit, Brian Phelan uh, at Secret Cinema One, where he's put a Pretty much one of the perfect shots of, of a the main character with dozens of people sitting behind her in the cinema, which is one of the creepiest oh, fucking yes. games in the movie. Oh my. And he, he describes it thusly. Part Carnival of Souls, part Romero zombie flick, but with a neon-scarred mood all of its own. Darkness never so dark, the safety applied a trap, evil spreading like a virus, yes. Blood moons, bleeding eyes, warning journals, pop art dread. And that is... Possibly one of the most succinct summaries of that movie. I watched it very late at night, so if if anyone of you two wants to try and describe the plot, because my brain really had a lot of trouble processing it, even though I really freaking enjoyed the film. It's a but, fevered I mean, dream. It's, it is, uh, is, yeah. is the easiest way to describe <laughs> it. It's a I don't think plot is like... amongst its strengths. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's it's the kind of movie which starts and ends on the same sort of voiceover with a character coming down a hallway, but then shot in such a way that the character is basically turned into a weird ghostly figure that approaches mm. and then is reversed. And it is basically it is some some art, and it's but it's it's very seventies. You know, the horror is there, but they're also they're trying to throw quite a bit of other things in. They're throwing in, you know, it's, it's a slightly horny film, and we 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 don't have a lot of free 
you know, very horny horror films these days. It's gruesome mm. at the right level. And when it mm. decides to get into the creepy aspect, like the which the, is basically the movie sequence, movie sequence as as people come oh, behind yeah. her, you know, slowly filling up the theater behind her as our our main character doesn't notice them behind, and it's just that creeping dread just gets more and more intense as you watch that scene. So, and as I said, it's one in the morning, so it was uh, it was an interesting experience to watch it that late at night. I think I saw it round about that time. Yeah, same. And I think that's when it should be watched. Um, for me, it's a film that's a sister film of the genre. Um, you went to this town and you shouldn't have, and now it's too late to leave. <laughs> and um, which, and I would put uh, In the Mouth of Madness by John Carpenter. And um, I think it's Dan O'Bannon who did Dead and Buried. Um, yeah. those, those two films. Yeah. I think are, are probably the closest I would come to sister films, although this on a screen grab to screen grab level seems like it was drinking way more from a Suspiria kind of water glass than either of those. But a, uh, a very different alternative to those uh, movies is a, a brand new Apple TV show um, called uh, Schmigadoon. Had Lasso? <laughs> Um, it, it's um, called it's called Schmigadoon, and it's um, about uh, um, a um, a couple who are on the rocks who find themselves suddenly trapped in a uh, a idyllic town called Schmigadoon, which is every day is a musical, and they and they can't leave unless they find true love. <laughs> it's absolutely hilarious. <laughs> but it's it's just like Messiah of Evil, except it really, really isn't. <laughs> but they are they are trapped in a town that they shouldn't be in. So there no, you go. No, yeah, basically a small California town where where basically a cult is is growing and there's undead and there's there's possible mm. demon influences. It's, it's, as I say, it's almost impossible to describe if you watched it that late. Did you uh, enjoy? It? Was it I, something I really did? I, I was I was kind of started off being slightly perplexed by it, like I do with a lot of artsy type movies. But then as it as it developed and that that sense of growing trig got and now it just got later and later and I got tired and tired and tried to my brain was just basically rebelling against what was going on on screen. And I I really just the description, but I went, OK, this is going to be an artsploitation. But it it's a very good artsploitation. It's, it's, did you watch it's, the prime one or oh, no? I watched the Shutter. It's just a ripe on Shutter, and it's oh good. So that might be a good print then. It is a fantastic print. It looks oh it's, good. It's been good. cleaned up because I know there's a lot of stuff that goes on Prime. It's just slapped on there from VHS mm. tapes or that they found in the back of a dumpster somewhere. There's there's a lot of very bad prints of stuff on there. And but Shutter is Shutter cares about the movies they put on there. So the, when you see something popping up there, you know you're getting. A really good quality. I've never seen anything since Shutter came out in New Zealand that has looked less than pristine. Um, well, the the alternative to that, I believe, is the um, Prom Night Two. Is uh, looks like a VHS copy, but uh, I think Prom Night Two should look like a VHS copy. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's if if you if you uh, that's I haven't seen it because I'd seen that before I uh, uh, turned up on Shutter. I'd seen it quite a while ago when I watched that. Uh, I think I watched that with my Cinema Z crew, and you know, we we did a bunch of of kind of horror sequels, um, Sleepaway Camp Two, for instance, which was 
quite the experience after Sleepaway Camp, because if you watch those two in consecutive weeks, you think there's two entirely different movie series that they just <laughs> the same name on. Because the second one is so bizarrely upbeat for a slasher movie. Whereas oh, wow. the first one is, yeah, it's, it's just it takes the character who in the first movie didn't say shit. I mean, you could have set her on fire, she wouldn't have said ow. And they make her into a comic relief slasher killer. Uh, killer. It's, she just won't shut the fuck up, to be perfectly frank. Oh. So, um, yeah, it's, Angela has definitely become one of it. Angela and Sonny Chiba are our two uh, cinemas um, uh, uh pantheons of awesome at the moment. Watch some Sonny Chiba movies. Who, uh, oh, who well, lost, yeah, uh, and much respect and sadness to Sonny Chiba, who... Oh, have... Hell of a career, though, I was going to say. I mean, at 83, he's he had mm. two, over 200 roles, and, I mean, a lot of them we won't have seen here because they're Japanese, you know, uh, productions, mm. but the ones we have seen, Sonny Chiba was... I mean, he he had the the, the straight-up, in-your-face, I'm-going-to-kick-your-head-off-your-clean-off-your-shoulders approach, but he could also be incredibly incredibly subtle and he could be also incredibly a moving character he could be he really he could act he well he wasn't just a guy there to to ground growl and kick you in the face you're talking about wolf guy right we're talking yeah. about wolf guy we're talking about the street <laughs> fighter we're talking about the bodyguard we're talking about sunny goddamn Chiba. Mm-hmm. yeah and i'm raising a tequila for him because i don't have any sake <laughs> fair enough <laughs> that doesn't now, sound um, like you were you talking were about for lockdown after all <laughs> So you've you talked about the so you've given one paragraph to uh, Messiah of Evil. What was the other film? Well, the other film I will save the other film because I'm sure we're going to do another one. We we seem to be on a bit of a roll here. Uh, yes, we seem yeah. to just going to do a quick chat. So I'm going to save uh, my uh, serious rewatch that surprised the shit out of me for the next film. Stay tuned. Ch 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 ha ha ha. That might be a bit of a clue. Oh, it might okay. be. Hey. <laughs> Um, since everybody else wants to cheat, I'm just going to cheat full out, and I'm going to um, talk about the White Lotus because, yeah, it's technically not a film, but it's better than any film I've seen that's new oh, this wow. year, and it's so good. It's on Neon. It's six one hours, but they're all written and directed by the same person, Mike White. And I had this revelation while I was watching this, and then I was just watching. Um, I started watching this Amazon Prime series that Emily Mortimer directed based on a Mitford, uh, Nancy Mitford novel. And I'm like, oh, actually, man. there is no more indie cinema like there was in the mid-90s when I was that were growing up. There aren't these chancy little indie films that get made. And those films are now series for streamers. And if you care about, I mean, I I grew up on features. I love features. That's my thing and i've resisted like you know quality tv but ultimately when you get something that's so clearly the product of somebody's point of view and the only difference between it and the features that you're watching is a the duration and b that it's better it seems churlish not to talk about it um the white lotus is a six one hour series on neon about a resort in Hawaii and a few days in the life of that resort as um, several privileged guests show up and uh, havoc ensues and uh, then they leave. And it's very clever in that it creates a hook and that the first scene uh, is set um, at the chronological end of the show. 
and you see a body getting loaded onto a plane and you find out from one character who was at the resort that it was somebody who was at that resort and you don't know who it is. And then you get one week earlier and you meet the folks at the resort and it's, it's almost like this weird reverse Agatha Christie thing in a way. Um, because you're instead of working out who's going to get killed next, you're like, who's going to get killed at all? It's not a who done it, it's who got it done to them. Um but uh it's brilliant. It is so um of the moment in terms of kind of twenty twenty one politics, and it's this perfect edge of satirical but not pushing so deep that it loses the humanity, but just teetering on the edge. You have actors like um, Steve Zahn and, and Jennifer Coolidge, both of whom are incredibly skilled comic actors who have played characters who, you know, have gone well beyond that kind of edge um, and just managed to push the estate just close enough on the other side. Um, there's a brilliant uh, performance by the girl who I previously only knew as the Rock's daughter in San Andreas. Oh, Alexandra um, Desario. Yes, who uh, has gotten married to a very wealthy person after a less than illustrious career in trying to make journalism and mostly winding up writing listicles about power, boss, women, and things like this. And um, But also, I mean, Jennifer Coolidge is just such a force of nature and if there was nothing else than watching like her milk three comic beats out of drinking a single glass of champagne before she attempts to um discard her um mother's ashes into the sea like it would be worth it for that but it's it's so highly recommended and so um I, I would not recommend necessarily watching it with your parents. There's some sexually explicit uh, discussions in it. And there's um, at least two scenes depicting different things that either are of the human, human anatomy or that the human anatomy can do that. I don't think I've seen on even, um, you know, <laughs> adult TV before. So, Okay. Uh, take take that with take that as you will, <laughs> but um, yeah, I think the the interrogation of our values at this time it's laugh out loud funny. Um, there is an element that I think some people have reacted to, which is that it is um, a story about privileged white people who are going to a place that's been colonized and are willfully blind to many aspects of that, and its treatment of some of those characters at the periphery uh, takes on those blinders. Uh, but I think that's not a failure of the film. I think that's, or the, it, and in fact, I'm calling it a film when it's a series because it is so filmic. And I haven't even mentioned the score, which is unique and brilliant and is probably going to do. I, I actually think it'll be to the 2020s, what the inception thwom is to the 2010s, which is, something so completely imitated that we'll be fucking sick of it by it in a oh, decade wow. now. Um, and, uh, and the use of music, I mean, that's the thing is that, um, a lot of the reason I don't rate a lot of, um, series is because they're very 
televisual in their approach. It's and and they, you know, they're just like, okay, we're going to shoot two characters talking to each other and we'll cover it with a wide and then two reverse closes. And then we'll go to the next scene and we'll cut every scene individually. And then we'll bang them on a timeline together. And then that's the show. And, um, and so to see something like this, where it's like, there's this real, I mean, Mike White's never going to get mistaken for like Gaspar Noe or David Lynch or somebody like that, but there's definitely a sensibility in thinking about it more than just as an assemblage of scenes. And yeah, it is. Um, and, and you get to spend six hours in Hawaii, which we could all use right now. Mm-hmm. And for people who want to see it, I looked it up. It's on neon in New Zealand. It's HBO. That's where I watched it. Yes. Yeah. So HBO max. I think if you're listening further afield, uh, but yeah, so oh, and, yeah. Every, and I looked it up briefly while you were talking and it's on every, uh, what to watch during lockdown that's uh, listed that's turned up in the last four days. So uh, apparently the critics are agreeing with our critics. So. <laughs> well, I, I was intending to watch it, but um, in the next couple of weeks or so, but I will, I will definitely make that one a high priority now. It's uh, up the list. <laughs> I tell you what I have been watching and this isn't one of my choices, but it's um, Ted Lasso season two. Oh yeah. Absolutely holds up. I haven't looked it up, so I have no idea what Ted Lasso is. Please explain. Ted Lasso is a warm hug of a TV show. (laughs) (laughs) It is. (laughs) (laughs) It's Jason Sudeikis, who's a very, very funny comedian anyway from Saturday Night Live, and he's gone on to do other things where he has maintained a level of consistency. He was in Colossal. Right. Yes, he was. Yes, indeed. And um, and he he plays a um, a coach, a um, an American football coach who is uh, brought over to England to uh, coach a um, a Premier League f- um, s- football, as in soccer football team. And the reason he has been brought over in in the first season is because uh, the new owner of the um, of the Premier League has um, uh, won it in divorce, essentially. She now owns the team, and she wants to sink the team to hurt her ex-husband. So she brings over a uh, someone who almost certainly knows nothing about football and will do nothing to help them. Except... That Ted he has Lasso, a particular set of skills. Yes, he's um, he he can channel Liam Neeson in a heartbeat. Um, <laughs> he is just the most relentlessly upbeat person you'll ever meet. And we also, to the series credit, learn the downside of what being relentlessly upbeat can do. Because he um, and I, I won't go into it, but the second season has gone through a lot of the storyline I've just mentioned, and come out the other side, and it just continues to be upbeat and happy. Yet it does throw a few wrenches in there. But uh, I've just seen the Christmas episode which is just magnificent and is definitely going to be one of my, uh, a Christmas episode in rotation 
from now on in when Christmas comes up. It's um, yeah, I can't say enough loveliness about this this series. You definitely need to um, to start watching that one, Skeets. I think you'd really enjoy it. Right. Yeah, it's very funny to... too. I didn't mention that. It's a, yeah. it's a warm hug, but it is brilliantly funny. A warm hug with a tickle, in effect. So you giggle at the Yes, time. yeah, and it's and it's British, yeah. so it's British footballers. So it's, there's um, it's quite profane and it's quite but um, warm and lovely at the same time. It's see, I'm, I'm so out of the loop. I didn't even realize it's a British series. I keep hearing about it and with Emmys and things like that, and just well, it's, it a, it's that was... set in Britain, but it was developed by Jason Sudeikis, so it's right. sort of Films from Scrubs, geographically and... challenged. Ah, there we go. But that, 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 I see. I've gone the opposite direction because I started uh, Slasher, Flesh and Blood, the series, uh, a couple of days ago, and watched All the, the first David Cronenberg. Yes, and it has a scene in it which would make you turn it off immediately and go and watch The Descent again. Uh, it's it was surprisingly <laughs> brutal, even for me. And I've watched a lot of slasher movies. Oh my lord! Um, <laughs> it was yes. I, I was not quite expecting it. Um, and once again, I was watching this sort of. You know, after work style of thing, and just kind of chilling out with a bit of bit of horror TV, and then I just kind of went, Jesus effing, you know what? Because seriously, they 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 take that slasher a bit on the title and the flesh and blood, and they they go, well, let's just do that, shall we? So, yeah, I'm I'm not sure I'm going to. It looks like I'm going to continue with the series. It definitely had a good start and it's an intriguing premise, but it's going to be fucking brutal. I'm well, was that just that. the first episode that in the produced... first episode, about halfway through, and it's suddenly just like, wow, they're 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 putting this out on the table that this is not for this is not for people that it's not one to show your grandma unless she really likes really likes horror movies that are quite literally graphic. But my my upbeat, relentlessly upbeat series at the moment has been The Owl House, which is oh. a Disney uh, teen cartoon that my nearly teenage son insists that we have to watch. And it is just, it is an amazing movie. It's got the cult fandom going on. There is already a campaign, Save the Owl House, because Disney and their infinite wisdom has taken something that trends on Twitter every time a new episode drops and cancelled it after two seasons and said you can have some specials. Season three will just be like three movie-length specials to finish off the series. And it is just one of, it feels almost like it is, it's been rushed a tiny bit because it feels like there's, with the time frame they've been given, they have to really push the storyline along. But apart from that, it is just an incredibly well-written, incredibly uh, heartwarming uh, cartoon. Great storyline. It's it's pissed off some conservatives in America because, oh, it's all about witches and demons. And then somebody pointed out, no, it's it's about a, a uh, LGBTQ uh, uh, Latino female heroine who's very strong. And that's the last thing that a lot of white Christian Americans want, right? Oh, wow. Uh, and it is, you, it is subverted uh, are all you my there? expectations. I'm still here. You, can you hear me? Yeah. Yep. We're all yeah, here. Yeah, yeah I, I thought you dropped out for a second. my expectations because you see a lot of cartoons, if you've seen a lot of cartoons when you've got it with your father, and quite often they follow the same storyline, and there's always the mean girl, and there's always this, that, and the other thing. And every character, no matter how small, has got their own arc, and that has taken places which I did not expect a Disney cartoon to go. And it's um, one, it's got two of the best voice characters ever, and they're voiced by Alex Hirsch, who was the Gravity Falls creator. Oh, as, great. As one of the greatest character creations of all time, Hootie, who was 
in the first episode, he's just an owl face on a door that opens up and you step through in a slightly disturbing moment. And mm-hmm. then he suddenly, they've they obviously just let him go with it. And it's become one of the most wonderfully surreal characters I've ever seen on TV. Awesome. So, um, yeah. And every time I turn on my Twitter account, the, um, the owl house, sunny trends and I start getting spoilers. So we had to rush through and binge watch the series to catch up. Yeah. It's now currently on a hiatus. <laughs> so everyone in the owl house fandom is currently screaming out for more of it, but it's going to be, uh, there's a mid season finale. So we've got to wait, I don't know, a couple of months, a month or so, a couple of months, my, yeah, Aiden's saying he doesn't know how long, but we uh, we are waiting with bated breath for for more Owl House. Oh, that's great! I've watched the first couple of episodes and I kind of liked it, but I didn't. Uh, it it I, develops, I, yeah. It really. I does. need to get back into it, and I, I certainly shall. And I mean, this is you know, with Alex Hirsch's creator of Gravity Falls, I'd never seen Gravity Falls until they showed it to me, and we binge watched that entire series. Which oh, that's brilliant! That is. Most, have you is, seen that? Gravity Falls? I haven't seen it. Oh, is, I think you'd really well enjoy it. it. Actually, it's uh, it's got something. It's something else. Is it live show. action or what is it? No, animated. It's animated. Okay. But and it's, it's, it's uh, Jason one, one, Ritter one, one, one. and Kirsten Schell. Kristen Schell. And, and one, uh, yeah, great characters and a plot that is a hell of a lot deeper than most. Kids oh yeah. I mean, you remember our kids' cartoons that we saw when we were growing up in the eighties. And you put them side by side, and it's just kind of like, how deep can you make this? How many plot threads can you intertwine into this that then develop over multiple seasons? I mean, we used to get every episode was a was a one off. So yeah, that's well worth the effort if you haven't seen that. Cool. Um, I've lost track of whose turn it is because we're all talking about different <laughs> stuff. I, 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 um, oh, I think it's my turn actually, isn't it? It's. Uh... <laughs> I thought you all the way around and back again. I, I will just just jump on the movie. I'm going to just take over quickly here because oh, I, okay, I made, fine, fine. I made a ch ch ha 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 sound. So you know I'm going to yes, you did, right you did. Uh, but I recently it was another podcast I listened to, uh, the Saturday Night Freak Show. Said they were doing Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. Jason lives, and I tried to search my memory for this, and I thought, well, I haven't seen it. I've seen it one time, and I haven't seen it since then because some many years ago, I decided the smartest thing to do with the Friday the 13th movie so was to watch them all one after the other over consecutive nights. That is the worst possible way to watch Friday the 13th because you are trapped in Groundhog Day. It just becomes a endless <laughs> cycle of killing and sex and killing and killing during sex. And by the time you get to the fifth movie, it's... Uh, so what's the bad part of that? Well... <laughs> It gets a bit dull. I mean, you know, if you if you were doing all that sort of stuff, and and you know, eventually you're going to get bored with the murder and the sex, but <laughs> all the sex and all the all killing, the I... <laughs> and it, it, for me, it, it, the first half of it peaks at four, and four is is balls the ball crazy, and then the fifth one, which some people really really love, and I really really detested, which it kind of tries to do something new, and I think in my mind it just wrecks the whole thing. I watched Friday the 13th Part 6 after that, and I just found it kind of dull. And I just, you know, it's the same thing. And then I rewatched it this time. I only watched it a couple of days ago. It is a completely different movie from what I remember. It is a self-aware horror movie in 1986. Because there is, the first third of it is so much comedy. And it's literally poking fun at its own series. Which oh, I really? did not remember. There's... I mean, Jason is practically becomes a ninja. He jumps out of a tree at one stage to kill a guy during a paintball game. And <laughs> one of the other guys who are on a corporate retreat turns around, sees him, and shoots him in the chest with a paintball gun three times. 
and Jason literally stops and does a double take as he reacts to it. So it's 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 so different from the one before. It's so different from the one after, which of course was Jason meets Carrie in part seven, which is I've really developed quite a lot of over the last. It's quite months. a lot of fun. I quite like that one. But yeah, Jason six. It didn't hold up all the way. About three quarters of the way through, it just started. It kind of lost the sense of humor as it started killing off the characters, and it became a, a typical Friday the Thirteenth stalk and slash for me. But it, it really, when I look back at the Friday the Thirteenth, if you watch them, not kind of trying to mainline the entire series until you see nothing but machetes in your sleep, there is different approaches to it. Some of them which work, some of them which don't. I still got a bit of a, a kind of a love for the, the last of the original series before they went into space, where they tried to explain how Jason could jump around from body to body, which was never used again, never used before. But they tried to do something a little different. And then, of course, the next one, they just went, fuck it, shoot him into space and make him into a cyborg, you know. And I quite like Jason X because it, it once again, it's like Friday the 13th Part 6. It takes what it's done before and just goes, let's just have a look at how ridiculous this has been and go a little bit further. So, yeah, it's a, it's a half of a good movie and half of it not as good a movie as it was. I, I've kind of lost interest but about 20 minutes ago. I was kind of just... Checking the clock, which is never a good sign. But the first half is, if you haven't seen for a while, it's definitely worth going back just to see comedy Jason. Remind me, which one is the final chapter? Is that three or four? Uh, that was uh, That's four, four, I think. Chapter. Okay. That's the yeah. one that's that the, the Hollywood Chapman. played a couple years back, right? Yeah, that's one yep. with Corey. Corey Haim. Uh, oh, Corey and, Haim. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Corey, no, it's Corey, Corey Feldman. Feldman. Corey Feldman. Yeah. Sorry, wrong Corey. Corey Feldman. And, Crispin uh, Glover, right? It's from yes. Glover doing the Crispin Glover dance, which is fun as hell. It's got probably the most gratuitous nudity. It just constantly, they keep throwing that in there because it's kind of like, this movie's getting boring. Boobs! <laughs> I didn't go to bed. <laughs> it was <terrific. laughs> You'll be glad to know I haven't shown him any Friday the 13th movie. So we'll wait for his 14th birthday for that. Okay, we're losing a little bit of audio there yeah, from you. You're, you're walking away from your mic. You're farther down the well. Testing, testing, back again, back. How's that? Okay, better. Yeah, it's, it'll do. Right. Yeah, it's never That'll do, pig. That'll do. <laughs> Speaking of that, I'm going to talk about pig, because, hell, we're not even doing proper yeah, glasses anymore. Go for and it. pig <laughs> is so good, and we're not going to be able to see it anymore until cinema's open. But, man, when cinema's open... Go see Pig. Um, Nicholas, sorry, testify. Yes. Nicholas Cage plays a man who has moved to the rural middle of nowhere, Oregon, and lives in a cabin and has nothing in his life except his beloved truffle pig. And one day, it's pig napped. And you may think this is John. Wick, but with a pig. And it's true that <laughs> Nicolas Cage has a certain sense set of skills. And those set of skills, however, turn out to a be culinary. <laughs> be, well, A, culinary, B, being able to take an incredible amount of physical abuse. Oh, that's a good and point. <laughs> C, being able to see into somebody's soul and devastate them with a withering bon mot. <laughs> yes. and somehow this is enough to make one of the best films of the year i absolutely it, it it's a film that um i 
talked about on critics and cars going home and we'll go live whenever we can talk about it. But we literally compared it to everything from Kelly Reichardt's first cow to fight club to Ratatouille. And, (laughs) and each of those are accurate in their own way. And yet just get you farther away. It's, it's, (laughs) it's a film that is, only unique in so far as that it commits to not being at all of genre and being all about its characters. Mm-hmm. And as a result, those characters being so specific and also so Nicholas cage giving the most inward performance that actually like in a way, I don't think this film would work with anyone besides Nicholas cage because mm-hmm. anybody else, you would just be like, when is this guy going to do something? But it's Nicolas Cage, so you know he's going to do something. But, you know, it's it's that tension that allows him to have this almost kabuki level of incredible stillness um, that is almost like the photo negative of his character from Mandy. Mm. And Adam Arkin gives a career best performance in such a a small role, but such a well-rounded, fleshed-out character too. It's uh, oh yeah, a brilliant and and it's and it is a film where it feels like every single character on screen, even during the start, where they're just going through this kind of who kidnapped the pig thing, um, mm-hmm. and there's some characters that only appear for like there's one great character who's. Um, a woman who's in the farmer's markets who helps them track down the kidnappers. And she's just like, goes off and you're like, Oh man, I just want the whole film to be about her. And it goes straight past her. But it's like every character you feel like you could follow into their own movie and they feel that well realized. But, um, the, the core of the movie has almost nothing to do with the plot there's a centerpiece scene that um where he goes to a restaurant and um has an encounter with a chef that turns out to be somebody that he used to know and i'm not going to say any more than that because finding out everything that it's just a film that is so fun to go into blank um, and you're not going to be traumatized by this film. I don't think it certainly, if you watch even half of the shit that we talk about on this, you're not going to be traumatized by it. It's Absolutely. just, uh, it's just an amazing, um, beautiful journey. And, uh, one thing I say about the scene you just mentioned though, is that that has to be one of my scenes of the year. I'll say no oh, absolutely. More yeah. It's... And it, and the, the, tonal tension it's almost like korean films where any moment you suddenly like can go from laughing out loud to being shocked to being ready to cry and that's a film that's a scene that actually does all of that within that scene without a single moment of actual transgression or anything. It's not like a Korean film where suddenly somebody it's because somebody slit somebody's throat that you react that way. It's just the journey of that scene. And that yet somehow is true to these incredibly complicated characters. Mm, absolutely. And I, th- I think I said to you and, 
you and and Sarah after we saw it um, that I just felt uh, when it finished I just felt incredibly affectionate towards that movie and it's and it holds I just there's mm. it's not a it's not a hug movie <laughs> but there's just something there's something I just feel so warm towards that film and everything about it. It's just, it left me feeling excited about cinema and what it can do. And I was, um, and I think that's worth everything. Yeah. All right. Do you have any uh, other movies that you guys want to share about? Or shall we? I I do. Can we do a quick round for a start before we do that? I wanted to do a little challenge since we do got no rules. I want you to, not not the movie you're about to talk about, but I want you to give talk about another movie, but in one sentence and go around a movie you've seen recently and describe it in one sentence and why people should see it. Oh, hell. And okay. I'll start with the one that you showed me. Uh, and I appreciate you re-showing it to me. High anxiety, police movie stolen. I believe it was Madeline Kahn. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll go. Over to you. Uh, yep. <laughs> Cisco Pike, Chris Christopherson is a gift to cinema as much as he was to music, and nobody realized it, and he's been there all along. Okay. Nice. Yep. That's a good one. Um, okay. Uh, Hamilton. Not um, a film. <laughs> <laughs> I well, I I beg to differ. It um, it was a um a heck of an experience, um theatrically, and it moved me tremendously more than I ever expected. There we go. All right, challenge accepted and completed. Well done. Back to you, Doug. <laughs> uh, back to you. Sorry, Darren. <laughs> Right. Well, that's. I was going to talk about Hamilton, but now I've I've done that one. Um, so, uh, um, yeah, so I'll just it's not a movie throughout the whole thing. So, no, so I'll fine. talk about one that I. Just I talked re- about the White Lotus. So. Yeah, I did a talk about one that I just revisited um, today. In actual fact, uh, which was The Fugitive, which I haven't Ooh, seen nice. since since I saw it on video a long, long time ago back when it first came out on video, I would imagine. Um, and I just, it, it's a great movie. And I i don't think I enjoyed it anywhere near as much the first time as I did this time around. It's, um, it's, it's very well made. The, I mean, the, the, the train. Davis is a fantastic director. Oh my! What else has he done, Doug? Oh well, he's done the Final Terror. Um, didn't he also do something called like Under? Did he do one of the Under Siege movies? Oh, he did the first one. Yes. Yeah, yeah, and he's he's done a couple um, big budget films as well. But um, I think we can all agree that the Final Terror was his first chance to really show off his chops in a low budget setting. But the Fugitive. I saw about it two years ago on a plane and I totally agree with you. Like revisiting it, it's like, wow, this is way better than I remember it being. And Absolutely. I didn't really expect it to be a film that held up. And the the thing one thing that really took me is I remember when I first saw 
the fugitive i felt like or or my memory of tommy lee jones performance was it was really big watching it now it's anything but big it's actually very very pulled back and very natural and and he's very relaxed and and the the scenes with him and his team are very light and jokey and it's it's a a tremendous performance and he well, I, an oscar winning performance even though he did win an oscar for it i think he's done better he that could have won oscars but it's a very very likable performance it is it's and and likable is a good is an interesting word because he he's he's a son of a bitch in a lot of care in a lot of sense <laughs> but he's our son of a bitch <laughs> yeah it's um there's there is something about him that makes him very watchable and i i don't know if i should lead on to um watching um u.s marshals oh, which is now available on netflix new oh, zealand oh, that, but that's uh, so not worth it I, I had the fugitive on vhs i bought the thing after it came out and i used to watch it as one of those movies when you just didn't know what you wanted to watch so you picked up and put back on something you already knew by heart and i must have watched that a half a dozen times at least off that vhs tape and it it's it's just it for me every time it works because once again, you sided with the character, the, the character you're supposed to side with, and you, the son of a bitch on the other side was just doing his job, so you knew he wasn't yep. the villain. And you know, it it hit those those notes just to make it a a nice adventure ride mm-hmm. in an uh, American you know wilderness. It, it and it it does what it says in the tin. It is he is looking for the fugitive. The the video box you know showed that kinetic scene of him you know with the train behind him carried it many many times i think at the time but it's it's yeah as you say it's one of those movies that has held up and it's 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 surprising that some of the movies of that from that same era which are only you know 25 plus years old at this time when they were 1993 so 28 years old there's other ones in there which mm. you try and watch now when they are they are such a product of the early 90s that they're almost unwatchable but yeah, this one could have been a- made at any time Absolutely, it's a very solid film. It's brilliantly made, and and, and um, the the villains of the piece. I mean, Jerome Crab, who I I love in pretty much everything, and he he's given a, a really good character to play. And um, Andreas Katsulas, who played the one armed man, who um, um, became known to me, and I imagine maybe possibly the listener um and playing jakar in babylon 5 which um, i don't know if if either of you have ever seen babylon 5 but um, no, I haven't. no I've, I've always heard about it and everyone an amazing to watch space it. opera it's it's fant- it is just great and i've seen it i've seen the whole series many many a time and and andreas katsalis's character jakar has one of the biggest arcs of the, he's a supporting character, but he, he has such a, a change of character. He's the kind in the first season, he's the Machiavellian villain almost. And by the final season, he's a tragic hero. And, um, and it's an amazing performance. And you can't, quite see that um 
that he, uh, the guy who plays the one-armed man, has the ability to play that type of role. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, it's. I, I don't know if Babylon Five is readily available to anyone, but I highly recommend that too as a, a binge watch for. I just assume all those things like that are like eight seasons of twenty-three episodes, and I just. Yeah, can't. you don't have the time these days. <laughs> Yeah, five seasons of twenty-two episodes, I think. Oh, so that's only like a hundred and ten hours, or roughly <laughs> sixty-five features. Yeah, Something got it. In my yeah. house, there is every VHS tape of Stargate SG One that was given to me for, by my brother-in-law, <laughs> and he said you might like the series, and they have never been watched because I seriously, every time I start a series, I tend to watch one episode at the moment, and then end up watching another first episode of something else later on. So. When you've got, mm. I think, a dozen VHS tapes, and yeah, it wasn't worth pulling the VHS out for that one because I was never going to finish it. Well, the the pilot episode of Stargate was um, at the t- it started off. It was a Showtime series uh, commissioned by Showtime for the pilot, and so it has full frontal female nudity in it. Ah. And the and, and, and so the, I'm not going to watch the series for that man. You can get that on. <laughs> it's 2021 <laughs> also, final film i'm going to talk about uh is, is going to blow that out the water anyway so all right well, 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 so... <laughs> that's good no, it's just strange that the um that only the pilot has that and the rest are very much a, a family show right but it's um but yeah the if you buy the it's i remember renting the first the first videotape or something and it um and it was the one episode was r18 and then the rest were pg <laughs> <laughs> what a bizarre start <laughs> yeah well that may if you if you finish talking about that one it will lead beautifully into the final film i want to talk about because I'm, I'm pretty much running out of films now but uh, a couple of nights ago i did watch a uh, my midnight uh movie which uh, was the movie Life Force for about the sixth time. Oh, and basically because we'd had a conversation on Twitter about, you know, the fact that so many movies these days, Hollywood just seems to be afraid to push the boat out. And it, Hollywood seems to be effectively muted. They, you know, a lot of things that are getting cut down to PG-13 or just made for PG-13. And then I go back and look at Life Force from 1985, and it is... It is British sci-fi with its pants on its head, just going, we've found the line that we shouldn't cross and we're running across it right now. I, every time I watch it, I've, have, I've almost forgotten just how much gets crammed into two hours of that movie. Everything that you can possibly think of, every bit of money that they could squeeze out of canon films is spent, whether it should have been or not. It's, you can see the, the point where canon films is about to start going into bankruptcy because they thought they were making... Star Wars, and they thought they were making a a booby flick, and they thought they were making a horror movie, and they made all of those simultaneously because there was a G. There were five writers on it. There's a lot of writers. That was rated G. Was it uh, Skeets? I don't know if it would be rated G. I doubt. As in G for boobs. (laughs) G for good God. (laughs) (laughs) It's there is so much money being spent on it. just the credits when they came up, special effects, John Dykstra, so visual effects creator mm. from Star Wars, 
Uh, Henry Mancini doing the music and the London Symphony Orchestra performing it. They got Patrick Stewart bringing the crazy. Patrick Stewart and just and he turns up about well, nearly fifty minutes into the movie and he's in there mm. for about fifteen minutes and it's just the most unhinged Patrick Stewart's performance I've ever seen. But by the end of it, I mean London's exploding. There's zombies. Just. Out of nowhere, the movie suddenly goes from being an alien invasion movie to Day of the Dead, as people, well, more like Dawn of the Dead, because there's suddenly oh. a million zombies rampaging through London, and buses are exploding, and lasers are shooting into the sky, and you can just hear the cash registers just ringing frantically as the accountants try to work out how much money has been spent on this movie. And it stars Steve Railsback, one of the least interesting actors I've ever seen in any of his films, and one of his most bizarrely nervous performances because he's, he's, he's a, an astronaut who's got he's met basically gone into space and met space vampires that are hitching a ride on Halley's Comet and that's your first scene basically as he's busy he, your first little chunk of the movie is that they find naked space vampires on Halley's Comet and I cannot stress that that is the most sensible part of this movie <laughs> in defense of Steve Railsbeck Let's not forget that he the did Stunt star in, in The Stumpman. Thank you very much. I haven't seen that. Everything I've seen him in, he's... So good. He's been Richard Rush you, you need to see The Stumpman. It's... Um, uh, Italy in TIFF. Right. What was, what was that? Oh, the NTIFF challenge that I'm doing. It's it, because it, he's one of the directors that passed away, Richard Rush. And his ah, uh, right. film, The Stuntman, is something that even um, is would not even be a stretch for Skeet to watch. I think mm. I may have seen The Stuntman, uh, if I'm thinking back. I think I have. Look at that. I have. It's, it's been a long time ago, and I've rated it four stars, so apparently I quite liked it in that one. So it does have <laughs> Peter O'Toole in there, so um, that, that may be... Uh, Oh, well, there we go. Oh, I love it. Peter O'Toole descends into shots like a deity on a crane forever, says Laird on Letterboxd. So, yeah, yes, I definitely have right. one of those. It's been a while since I've seen that. It's a tremendous film. Yeah, but, yeah, but as I say, I've seen him in a lot of other things. I've seen him in things like Turkey Shoot, and I've seen him in God Nuki. <laughs> there's there's <laughs> a lot of, lot of things. Nuki is a I'm black probably... hole of talent, to be fair. Nothing can escape him. <laughs> Well, you say, so you're saying that we could have put Sir Christopher Lee in that and he would have come off as the worst thing ever. But um. No, no, that's not true. <laughs> he could have played Nuki and, and elevated it beyond <laughs> I am Nuki. <laughs> <laughs> but getting back to Life Force, because Life Force is everything that we were discussing on the internet. It is massively overambitious to the point where you can just imagine that what Colin and Globus were thinking every time the rushes came in going, what are we spending our money on? It's it's horny as all get out because I mean it's got Matilda May in it and her mm-hmm. first performance and of course she went on to become quite a, a you know a long running actress she still does act I believe in France but of course for most guys that you know were coming of age in the 1980s it's yeah she was she was Matilda May she was the naked space vampire and mm-hmm. go back and look at her not to be the sexist bastard but holy shit she's perfect so there is absolutely no one else you could have put in that role. I would have thought mm-hmm. at the time without just destroying that the heart of that movie because the heart of that movie is holy fuck Matilda May is the hottest thing on the planet, and Agreed. then you surround her by some British actors who are very British acting, and there's a lot of shouting, and then you've got 
just Frank Finlay in there, and yeah, oh yeah, some great, great British actors in that one. Yeah, and then you're surrounded by some of the thing. some of the most over-the-top special effects. I mean, you've got you know some amazing prosthetics, full-body prosthetics, and as I say, by the end of it, they're setting people on fire and having them run around the streets of London. So if you haven't seen this, it is mad as a bag of puppies in the best possible way. <laughs> oh, those that mad, mad bag of puppies! Yeah, give it a good shake, and just that's that's what you've got, you know. Just just puppies. <laughs> you monster! You don't shake it back. You never monster. shake the puppies. Yep. <laughs> you hug the bag of puppies. That's oh, yes, what you yes. do. Absolutely. You need to watch Ted Lasso. Stat. <laughs> mm. uh, Speaking of shake. feel feel good. Um, I'm going to go for my last film, which is also a film I watched today. Um, I was going to talk about some of the NTIFF films I'd watched, like the Romanian film Everybody in Our Family or um, the Korea Kurahawa film Black Sun. But Waiting for Guffman, I mean, it oh, is dear. somehow my wife who taught drama for several years had never seen it, even though she's seen other of the Christopher Guest movies. And we discovered that. I'm like, okay, well, this is what we're doing this afternoon. And uh, I hadn't watched it for about 15 years, but I'd seen it several times. It was also one of the first DVDs I bought. And I discovered when I went into the deleted scenes that I'd not only watched the DVD repeatedly, but I'd watched the deleted scene of Parker Posey's dramatic audition for uh, the part, which if you haven't seen is incredible. Um, there are a couple of things I'd missed at the time, like that Bob Odenkirk is in it for literally two seconds in the hallway because um, at the auditions, because his scene was cut from the film and didn't even make the deleted scenes, but there's a really crappy version of it from an early VHS work print. But if you haven't seen waiting for Guffman, I should step back because um, it's uh, in the series of Christopher guest improvised comedies that includes um Best in Show and A Mighty Wind. And initially, there was uh, This is Spinal Tap, which is directed by Rob Reiner, so it's slightly different, but you know, a lot of the similar uh, working method in core cast. And uh, it stars guest as um, Corky, who's a off, 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 off Broadway worker who has a Broadway actor who's found himself in Blaine, Missouri, trying to reinvent himself only to uh, be brought back to his first lure of uh, drama and has been drafted to uh, helm the play for the 150th anniversary of Blaine called Red, White and Blaine. And uh, yeah, I don't know that I need to talk about it any more than that. I mean, Parker Posey as a young Dairy Queen worker who uh, is plays not very bright with just such amazing panache. Um, Fred Willard, I don't think we've still come to terms with what a national and international treasure Fred Willard was and how his particular brand of aggressive stupidity um, <laughs> combined with endearing personality is perhaps the pinnacle of comedy. Um, uh, it, it still doesn't quite reach the concentrated grandeur of Best in Show, where in a half day on set, he managed to give <laughs> like one of the best performances in cinema history. But it's still pretty damn great. And um, 
Bob Balaban has some amazing moments as the complete straight man here. Um, but just, um, cutting to him is beautiful, but yeah, it's, it's another film. That's a very great lockdown comfort. Like I, I think this, this lockdown is probably going to be a bit of me going back to films that I've loved and I haven't watched for 15, 20 years now and being like, okay, yep. It's about time for me to go dig out the DVD of, you know, various comedies that I've loved and be like, Oh yeah, this is, this is what, this is why we have the concept of comfort viewing. Yeah. And so I think it's one of the few of the, um, the, the mockumentary, uh, sort of series there that I haven't seen. I mean, I've definitely, I mean, I've seen Spinal Tap multiple times, you know, half a dozen times at least. And I've definitely seen something else and enjoyed them. It's just, I think this one just flew under my radar. I don't think I ever, wow. I mean, I've probably heard of it, but never actually picked up on who it was and what it, what it actually was about, that it was actually a, a crisp yes, you know, mockumentary. I, I probably just heard the title in passing and then it just was in one ear and out the other. What well, was the first one? I've enjoyed it. They're all the rest of them that I've seen. Well, yeah, that one's the first one. I mean, it's... Um, ah, okay. Spinal well, Tap Spinal was... Tap. Well, Spinal Tap, Tap was Rob Tap. Reiner, but the Christopher yeah, yeah. Guest series of films, that was the very first. Right. And, um, yeah, you really should see it, uh, Skeets. It is... Um, it is something else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we'll probably revisit Best in Show and A Mighty Wind. Um, Best in Show is probably still my favorite of the bunch, um, especially because it introduces once again, you know, I'm Gen- or, I mean, it's not an introduction, but uh, Jennifer Coolidge appears in that and um, anything that she appears in is just brilliant. Yeah, and Mighty Wind has um, just one of the sort of um, at, at the. It's very very funny, but has that great love story between um, Catherine O'Hara and Eugene Levy's character, which is um, which is really quite brilliantly done. Yeah, it's interesting because I remember watching that and not finding it as funny as Spinal Tap, but really enjoying it for what it was that. That it just it was at the end of the movie. I, I really had enjoyed watching, even though I don't think I laughed out loud at it the, too often mm. until the, maybe the, the final song, which I found ridiculously hilarious, even though it was done in, a, in an incredibly sweet way. And it wasn't. Were you like, what happened? Song. Yeah, it was. It was just uh, it just kind of tickled me <laughs> at the end. But it was yeah, it was the I do I do remember enjoying that quite a lot. So, but you know, I'm I'm a Spinal Tap. Fan. I love Spinal Tap, and I do love the fact that the Waiting for Government poster literally uh, builds itself as uh, a new movie from the lead guitarist of Spinal Tap. So. <laughs> <laughs> That's brilliant. I don't think I've ever seen that. <laughs> or not acknowledged it. Wow, that's brilliant. All right. Well, well is that... else there? have you got anything to finish us off there on Darren? Well, I I could do a... Um, it's um, a bit bittersweet. It's the... Um, it's the final film that I watched with my dad right. um, all the way through because um, we um, we did on the um, um, we did watch a, a few a few bits of um, Hans Christian Andersen with dad, which um, and he wasn't in a great way at the time, but it seemed to capture him. He seemed um, but then he uh, then we just had to stop. But uh, we watched a film called From the Vine, 
I don't know if either of you have heard of the movie. I think it did make it into um, uh, cinemas. Yeah, I think Sarah reviewed it a couple of years ago. The, or, yeah, I think it was a lot. Uh, I think it was 2020. Oh, um, it made it into cinemas thanks to the lockdown and. Um, and it was maybe it was just the right film for the right time because it's a uh, it's just a, a fairly gentle movie about um, uh, it's um, Joey Pants, Joe Pantoliano, who who, of course, was in The Fugitive, too. So that's um, the second time uh, I've talked of, about one of his films um, this evening. Um, and he uh, he. Uh, gives up his job, uh, throws in his job on principle, and then chooses to go to Italy to um, to carry on the um, family business of winemaking and leaving his family behind, or, or well, trying to bring them along with him, and they're not too interested. So it's um, it was just a just a lovely, light, warm movie that. Uh, the sort of mum um, movie that uh, is nice and easy to watch, but it um, it's uh, th- thanks to the situation that it's now forever linked to, it will uh, always have a place in my heart. Right. Yeah, and it does. It sounds like we're having a, look, a quick look at it online because I hadn't heard about this one. There, it does. It's yeah, a lot of, it's got a lot of very positive reviews, all sort of saying that it's a. Uh, you know that uh, this one's here saying that it, it wasn't expecting a film to bring so much joy and lift up my mood, especially in times like these. So that sounds like something we all might need at this stage. Mm. I reflect a lot on. I feel like there's a certain generation or certain period of in my life where it seemed like you know the real cinema um, or the serious cinema was you know quite dark and quite um, you know and the, the brutal even and that you know stuff that was uplifting was less serious in some way and Mm. i guess it's only now as i get a little bit older that you start realizing what um a that it's not really that easy it's quite easy to make something dark actually it's quite easy to make something upsetting you know you just go Mm. go down to your miter 10 and walk down a power tools aisle and imagine something and you know you can you're pretty much halfway there um but to actually engage people in something that moves them and uplifts them is really not as easy as it might initially seem and um and to have those kind of things that you can share with people and have them be meaningful is a real challenge and so uh i don't know exactly where i'm going with this other than to say that I feel like a film like that is something that's quite easy to scoff at superficially, but um, mm. um, certainly, you know, you it's not like the sort of situation where it's been like, oh, well, this is where te- you'd watch Raging Bull or Texas Chainsaw Massacre or whatever, you know, it's, it's about these things that are like about dramas, about knowing your place or understanding your place in the world and connecting and, and how we connect to people is so terribly important. And that's something that cinema can do. Absolutely. And also just the, the simple fact that it is a, a, a lead role for Joe Pantoliano, 
which uh, he doesn't often get. No, so, he knew normally normally a character actor who's who's always you know standing three feet behind the the main star. You know. Yeah, great in Midnight Run and and great in Fugitive and the that Sopranos season he was in. But he, he very rarely gets the the lead, and he was he acquitted himself extremely well. It was very watchable, very likable, and um, you were along for the ride. Which um, it's um, was was exactly what we needed at the time, and uh, I was very lucky that it was um, a very rare. Um, opportunity that my brother was with uh, me and my parents that night as well which doesn't happen that often and so he uh, so we saw the film together just the, the our family the four of us which was a, a a beautiful thing here's a here's a skeet style quick question what's your favorite memory of watching a film with your family current story accepted um i'll start i um took my family to see bad Santa and which sounds like, <laughs> wow. <laughs> okay. And I need to clarify this with a couple things. Once I'd seen it once two, I, my parents introduced me to South park by showing me Mr. Hanky, the Christmas poo. Okay. So I, I knew they'd appreciate bad Santa, obviously not a film that, you know, for you consider a traditional family film. Um, so we went out to Christmas Eve in Michigan and we went to this weird little multiplex that was on its last legs and their heater wasn't working or something. And this is, this is in Michigan at Christmas Eve. And I'm pretty sure there was snow on the ground outside. And I think they brought us blankets or something, but <laughs> we still like, stuck in the theater and like i think everybody i think like eight other people showed up and it was like a 400 seat theater and we all wound up sitting within two rows of each other to try to stay warm um but just the sheer you know laughter that we shared because bad santa is probably one of my 10 favorite comedies and um and so just the combination of it being a thing with my family and um, the absurd set of circumstances. Um, it's the first one I always think of. Wow. Yeah, I, I actually showed that to my parents. Uh, some, uh, really? Not, yeah, about... Um, okay, maybe you should watch The White Lotus with them. Yeah, well, uh, I, with, with my mum, mom, I mean, said, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah, and, uh, well, I, I, I've seen The Fingersmith with my mother. And if you oh, have, I'm, if you're not sure of what that one's about, look it up. I'm definitely aware. Like, I'm getting a bad feeling because I don't know what this, but that title does not bode well. <laughs> Shadwick Park was going to make a movie about it. That's all you need to know. Oh, okay, cool, cool. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, for me, I'm going back quite a long way because I'm going back to when I was still at school, and mm-hmm. my mother's a single mother, so we spend a lot of school holidays at my grandmother's. And I still, I don't have a huge memory for the things that happened when I was a kid, but I do remember being in the house there on school holidays and it was New Zealand television. So a movie would play on Saturdays or Sundays or whatever it was in the middle of the afternoon. And I remember saying, oh, you might quite like this one. And I was looking and she said, oh, this, you know, you might like this character, this one that's a, it's a Gene Kelly movie. 
and I don't know who Gene Kelly was. But that was my first viewing of Singing in the Rain, was at my grandmother's place. Right. Of course, the greatest movie of all time. Second to life for some days, but mainly the greatest <laughs> movie of all time. And, yeah, and it was, it was, it was pretty much it was at that stage that my grandmother, you know, told me about that. And I remember watching uh, several Gene Kelly movies that just happened to pop up at my grandmother's place coincidentally, because whenever it was on, she'd put that on because she loved the music and I loved the tap dancing. And then later on, as I got older, I loved the storyline, the comedy that came out of those movies. Because Gene Kelly was such a naturally gifted triple threat actor. He could act, he could sing, he could dance. And I mean, he was, his timing, his comedic timing was in that movie absolutely perfect. And then along comes Donald and make him laugh. And you had pretty much the, not in the beginnings of one of my, my movie watching experiences, but probably also my first experience with comedy on screen, which eventually, you know, I ended up in some comedy on stage. And that's probably one of the, the earliest points, that little that little spark back then. So my, my, my grandma's been gone for over 20 years now, but I still remember that quite clearly. Well, I mean, personally, I can't stand it. <laughs> <laughs> Very nicely done. Well, my beer is empty, my tequila is empty, and uh, my wife thinks that I've died back here, so I think <laughs> we, might, we might want to... Uh, I just said I was coming in just to test the, the thing to see whether this was going to work to record a podcast. And we recorded a podcast! <laughs> Next minute. <laughs> okay, so I well... I we need to wrap it up. Gentlemen, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I would like to be doing this around my coffee table with some shared beer, but we will be doing that once we kick coronaviruses delta-shaped ass at some stage yeah and depending on the news in the next couple days we'll either um hold out until we can next do that or maybe convene for another one of these depending exactly and if we have to convene for another one of these i'm going to be challenging you guys to come up with the greatest year in movie history Ooh. Ooh. I already have mine in mind and I want to find out. Oh, that's unfair. You've done your- <laughs> I've been thinking about this for a long time for a ludicrously specific spin-off if I ever got bored and recorded something badly myself. But I want to actually run this with you. I want you guys to think of that you're You're recording not- something badly right now. <laughs> you don't need to go anywhere else to record. <laughs> uh, definitely. Next time around, Deadly. if we don't do our movies, I want to find out your top movie year. The movie, the year that produced the best movies of all time. I have a I, few contenders in mind. I, uh, I'll need to do we'll, some. We'll save that brainstorming till next time. Yes, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, until next time, this has been a pleasure, gentlemen. Specific, and we would normally cheer our glasses at this point, perhaps, but no. Ha, ha, ha.